I want to uh, start off this morning by asking you a question. And the question is, what type of people change the world? I want you to start to think about, well, what, what kind of is the, the personality types or traits of people who you could say, that person has, has changed the world around them? Now, now, maybe you think of, maybe it's the richest person in the room, the, the most powerful person in the room, the person with the most influence. Maybe it's the smartest, the most creative, the most intuitive. I don't know what's coming to your mind. Now, now in a world of, of technology and everything just seems like month after month after month, it continues to go to the next level. We get new versions of iPhones and cameras and technology. Perhaps the names that first come to your mind are modern names like Zuckerberg or Jobs, Elon Musk. Or maybe your mind goes somewhere into the past in which the way they changed the world maybe wasn't by creating a new product, but changing something about the lives of those around them. Maybe names such as King or Wilberforce, Lincoln, Washington. You see, here's this this thing that I believe, though, that no matter who it is who has made a lasting impact on society, I think there's a thread between them all, and it's this is that passionate people change the world around them. Whether that was because of their wealth, their mind, their influence, the way in which they stood up for people who had no one to fight for them, passionate people change the world around them. This is a picture I want to show you this morning of a a young lady by the name of Carolina Williams. Uh, Carolina is from Brentwood, Tennessee, and she was recently accepted into Yale University, and an article was written about her acceptance process. And so Carolina, she's the first in her family to go to college, get accepted to college, um, and she decided to apply to the prestigious uh, Ivy League School of Yale University, in which not only was she accepted, but she received a lot of feedback about her admissions essay. And um, well, it's because of the prompt and what she decided to write about. Now, the, the prompt for this essay was just write about something you're passionate about. And so Carolina decided to write about, well, Papa John's Pizza. And she continues to write, and and she receives feedback about this amazing essay, writing to Yale University to get in, and she received not just an acceptance, but admissions people who decided to write her back because they were so moved by her essay about people. She said, uh, well, well, why did you decide to write about Papa John's? And she said, well, as a young child, the chain gave me independence uh, because I could order on the app for myself, and it also served as consolation and celebration as I grew up. Some of the admission team wrote back to her with notes saying, as a fellow lover of pizza, I laughed out loud, and then I ordered a pizza after reading your application. Another note from admissions team said that I laughed so hard on your pizza essay and I kept thinking that you are the type of person that I would love to be best friends with and you belong in our university. And so she gets this acceptance letter and yet she actually turns Yale down to attend Auburn. And the reason that she decides to attend Auburn is because guess what they have in their student center? A Papa John's pizza. Passionate people change the world. No matter what you're passionate about, you have the opportunity, if you live out that passion, to impact lives around you. And so I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask myself, what are you passionate about? 
What is it that you believe is the call, the purpose of your life that you could write an essay about or that if someone were to make a biography about your life, this is what you will go down in history known for. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 24 to start this morning. We'll go to a few other spots. We're wrapping up this teaching series called Chasing Purpose. In week one, we started with this idea that we are created, our purpose as followers of Jesus is to do good that glorifies God, that lifts up his name, not our own. And we've been kind of following this rabbit trail. We've talked about that. We talked about last week in order for us to chase that purpose, we actually need to slow down and rest. And today we're gonna kind of finish this idea. But before we get there, if you would, if you would let me, I, I, I wanna kind of take a step further in this idea of passionate people because I don't think they're just passionate about something. I think there's also another layer or something that kind of goes along. And it's this, it's that passionate people tell the best stories. It's not just that they're passionate about something. Do you ever meet someone who's passionate about like a food restaurant? You ever meet someone who's passionate about a brand, a sports team? They often have, they cannot wait to tell you stories about it, right? Like you talk to a guy about his work and he's just like, whatever, it's work, no big deal. Yeah, I show up, punch the clock, get paid, it's good, it's whatever, pays the bills, takes care. But then you find out that he's into hunting, and it's hunting season. You ask him, like, hey, man, like, like, what's new this hunting season? It's like, oh, I'm glad you asked. I got this new gear, and I found my new spot, and I set up the trail cams weeks ago, and based on the weather and everything he's going to do, I mean, I'm going to go out in two weeks, and, man, I'm just getting ready, and I've got my new bow. It's all set up, managed. And he just goes on and on and on. Why? It's because passionate people tell the best stories. They cannot wait to let you in on what they feel like is the secret of life. So here it is. Before we can say about, though, what is it that we're passionate about? What is that story that we are called to be passionate about? You see, in Luke chapter 24, we see Jesus encounter two men that are on what's called the road to Emmaus. Jesus has been crucified. He has risen from the grave, but these two men don't yet know this. And they're arguing on this path whether or not that Jesus' character was indeed who he claimed to be. All the signs, the wonders kind of painted the deal that he was going to change our life. That he was going to change the world back into to the Jews being at the top and everything. And, but, but he died. And so maybe this Jesus character isn't who we thought he was. Everything seemed to point that the story was going to finish with him. And Jesus kind of sneaks up along. He's like, yo, what you guys talking about? <laughs> oh, you're talking about me. Well, hey, let's, let's chat some more. They get to Emmaus, they sit down for dinner, and this is kind of how this interaction concludes. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, follow along with me. It says, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament, have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, so beginning with the book of of Genesis and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all scripture concerning himself. So Jesus kind of looks at these guys and he kind of sits them down. He says something extremely simple yet also very profound. He says, everything that you read, everything that you've heard, everything that you've committed to heart is about me. Now, his Bible, Jesus' Bible, wasn't the Old Testament, the New Testament. It would have just been the Old Testament. What he's saying, though, that God's law points to me. The prophets point to me. The psalmist speaks of me, that everything is about me. 
You see, we've said this before, that the Bible is one united story, beginning to end, cover to cover, Genesis through Revelation is one story that paints the picture of God's love and care for us. That the Old Testament paints this need, this story of a problem called sin getting worse and worse and worse. And that we need to be saved and redeemed. And then we get to the, the, the Gospels and we read about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then everything in the New Testament points back to him. The thing is, is that it's not just a united story. Each and every part of scripture tells a different piece. That God's law talks about how God, we have a serving, a living, just God. The Psalms talk about God's care for each and every one of us. The prophets speak to the need that we have. The gospels paint the picture, the biography of Jesus. The epistles, the rest of the New Testament show us how to live in this new life. And then Revelation as well, kind of how the story ends. Like you ever watch like a movie or a show with someone who's already seen it? And then like the whole time, they're like, oh, you got to watch this part. This is where it gets really good. Oh, this is the part where Dumbledore dies. I mean, maybe he does. I don't really know. Oh, you got to, hey, you see what they're doing here? You see how they're connecting this at the beginning? He's been dead the whole time. You ever like just kind of watch a show or a movie with someone who just, they're trying really hard not to spoil it, but like it's so good they can't help but not. I hate watching shows with those people. My wife and I, we can't watch shows that much. Like, we are really into the show Survivor, right? Reality television, where it's on its 41st season. And my wife will literally look up, when we watch old seasons, who's going to win? Because she gets nervous. And yet she still acts surprised. I can't believe they didn't get voted out. It's like, you looked up that they win. You ever watch, though, a show or movie with someone who just constantly spoils the ending? Here's the thing, is this tells us how life ends. This tells us how the whole entire story of creation ends. Spoiler alert, God wins. And not only that God wins, he is winning right now. So don't you ever think that sometimes like culture, we're just losing ground in the battle against God and society. We're losing ground in, in, in scripture in the world. We're just losing ground. But the ending says, no, no, God's actually winning. Because people are finding Jesus, hearts are being transformed, churches are being started, and over and over, it paints not a picture of a God who's losing and needs to catch up. Rather, God says, I have my spirit, I have my people, we are charging forward, we are taking ground, and in the end, the glorious victory belongs to him. Amen? Spoiler alert, though. In the end, God wins. You and I hopefully know the end of that story. And what that ending does is it glorifies God. So what's the big thing we're called in our purpose? I think first and foremost is that we share God's story. We are called to share this story with the people in our lives. The people you live with, the people you work with, the people that you spend time with. But I believe we do this in two main ways. I believe we share God's story in word and also in deed. Olivia read 1 Peter chapter 3 a little bit earlier in this clear command to share the word of God, to listen, to hear, to be ready to speak, to have an answer about what God is doing perhaps in your life or the world around you. Now some of you might say, hey Eric, I get it, that's for you. 
Eric, I understand the call to share the gospel, but you're a pastor. That's your job. That's where you went to school. There's no chance that I could ever share God's story with someone. I'm not good with words. I don't feel like I know enough. I don't feel equipped or qualified. Well, I'm going to give you a little life hack here this morning. Six words, three sentences that I believe summarizes the entire story of God in entirety. Here it is. Ready for this? Pay attention. If you're taking notes, follow along with us. It's this. It's that God creates, sin separates, and Jesus restores. That's it. Six words, three sentences. God creates out of love and shalom and peace. He has a desire for each and every person to live in harmony with him. Everything in his creation is about his glory and his name. But sin comes in and separates it all from him. The choices that we make, the choices that others make on our behalf, the brokenness in our lives and the world around separates the world from God. And so God says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to send Jesus, and Jesus is going to mend it back together. It's very similar to how we teach people to share your own personal story. When we say, you need to remember three simple words to share not just God's story, but your story. Before, but, and because. That before I met Jesus, this is what my life looked like, but I found Jesus, or Jesus met me in this way, and so because of that, this is how I now live. We're called to share God's story in word, but also in deed. Not just with our words, but also with our actions. Jesus looks at his disciples in near the middle of his ministry. They're kind of arguing about what does it look like to belong in the kingdom of God, and he gives them this very specific thing in John chapter 13. He says, people will know that you're my disciples by your love. I believe Jesus is saying is that our greatest storytelling ability, you and I alike, is not the words that come out of our mouth, but rather compassionate hearts that lead to active hands. That we share God's story both in word and in deed. Now some of us, we might be like, hey, I get it. I've heard this before, I know, I know, I know. Share, you know, share the story, tell people, evangelize, do good works in the name of God. I get it. I've heard this story, this message like a thousand times. Can we just move on to the next one? I think we need to protect our hearts a little bit if that's what's going through our mind right now. Well, Eric, I know, I know we're supposed to do that, okay? You've told me, you've told us, we've talked about it. In fact, I'm older than you, way older than you. I've probably heard this message more times than you've given it. It's probably fair. You know, it reminds me of this, uh, this old pastor's story that goes something like this. He said there was a pastor who took a new pastor in a small town. He walked in to the first day and he gave a sermon. And as he was leaving, there was a kind of line of people telling the, the pastor, man, that was a great sermon, pastor, really motivated us, encouraged us, man, we loved it. And he went home and kind of went through his week, showed up the next Sunday and preached the same exact sermon. To which the people are like, okay, well, well, maybe he was a little nervous. I know he's kind of getting moved in, so perhaps he was a little busy, didn't have time to prepare that next message. And so they kind of say, hey, another good one. Thanks for that, Pastor. Week three came along, gets up, he preaches the same exact sermon. And then week four, week five, week six, on and on and on. He just gets up there, and the people, the congregation is saying, maybe we made a mistake. Did we pick the wrong guy? Man, we we thought maybe he had more than just one sermon in his toolbox. And so finally, someone in the congregation bolsters enough courage and walks up to the pastor and says, hey, we get get it. Like, what's up with the same sermon over and over again? And he looks at the man and he says, well, as soon as you start living it out, then I'll move on to the next one. I'm going to be honest for a second. 
that came into my mind preparing this message, not for you, but for me. I mean, how many times have I preached about, let's share our story? How many times have I talked about love your neighbor as yourself? How many sermons have been given here at First Christian Church in its 70, however, 70-something years existence? You've got a story to tell. But that's the truth. Spoiler alert. We're never going to stop encouraging you to share God's story, both in word and deed. We will never stop because that is the one thing we are called to do above all else. The reoccurring passage that gets pointed to almost over and over and over again. In every church's mission statement to some degree or another is the Great Commission. Jesus has finished his resurrection. He has risen and he gives kind of his final marching orders to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, it says these words. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those are our marching orders as a church. That is the description of our purpose, to do good that glorifies God. How? By teaching people about Jesus and bringing them into that new life and helping one another take next steps of faith. Because here's the thing, is that you and I, we aren't just a part of God's story, we're a part of our story together. That we are a part of the church's story. And when I say the church's story, I don't just mean first Christian church's story. I mean the big C church's story, that you and I are a part of the church's story. But what is the church's story known for right now? If you ask somebody on the, on the side of the street, you walked up to them, or, or maybe perhaps a coworker who you know doesn't know Jesus, and you approached them and you said, hey, what is the church known for? What do you think you're going to get? Are you going to get that description in Matthew 28? It's just a bunch of people who, who passionately love Jesus and they're really encouraging us, or are you going to get something else? There's a lot of poor stories about the church out there, isn't there? Some people believe the church's story is about abuse, pain, exclusion. And I hope that we are a church that proves them different. There's a church's story that's all about prosperity or wealth, that God's job is to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. We should rest and know that God will not be mocked and that knowing Jesus deeply is the true blessing in life. See, my heart for us, my prayer for First Christian is that we are a church that we desire Jesus deeply so that we, as a community of faith, will be a sober reminder to each and every person around us of God's goodness. A place of warmth in the midst of a hostile society, a group of people who uphold the word of God, the call to live self-sacrificial lives, who embody that call to love your neighbor as yourself. Like, can we be that church? Like, like, don't you want to be a part of that church? Like, wouldn't you want to be a part of the church where, like, like, you have someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus, and they see you wearing that first Christian church merch, or they see that sticker on the back of your car, and they think to themselves, I'm not into religion, but I actually kind of like what that church is up to. 
I'm not into God, but if I were, there was something different about, man, man, that person. I don't really attend church, but if, if I decided to, man, I'd want to attend that church because everyone I've met from that church was kind and gracious and generous, and they were always encouraging to one another, not tearing other people down. What if, like, we were known as the church in the community in which people said, I'm not really into church, but I still really agree and like with what they are doing. Like, like, what if we became those people? See, I don't want the story of our church. Our leadership is, is clearly saying the story of our church will not be one of rules. The story of our church is not going to be about regulations. The story of our church isn't going to be about who can belong uh, and who can't belong. The story of our church isn't going to be about what does your past look like and do you feel welcome. The story of our church isn't going to be how many buildings do we have or how many X, Y, Z. The story of our church, what we want it to be is simple, is that we deeply desire Jesus in our lives. And as we do, it infiltrates into our care and our actions for one another. Don't we want that to be the story of our church? I mean, that is a church of love. That is a church of grace. That is a church of understanding, a church of restoration. Those are people who rely on the word, follow the spirit. Those are people where I went and I felt at home, even though I know what I did prior. That is the story of life change and restoration that we want this church to tell. But it's only if we desire Jesus ever so more deeply that we actually get there. Big vision statements can't do that. Another program can't do that. It's only in the hearts of you and I, as we become passionate about Jesus, does that story begin to change. But there's one other story that we're called to tell. Not just God's story, not just the church's story, but one other story. You are called to share your story. You are called to share your story. In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, one of the most radical stories of transformation, he kind of recounts his life encountering Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, 13 through 17, and then we'll skip to verse 23. Follow along with me. It says, so for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. He's talking about how religious he was. But he also says, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond uh, many of my own age among my people. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who sent me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. If you skip to verse 23, and he's talking about these people who are hearing God's or Paul's testimony. He says, they heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted, the, uh, persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. The Apostle Paul was not a good dude. He was a Pharisee, meaning he got all the churchy things right. He was very religious. He showed up, he checked all the boxes, but he was also a murderer. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a good portion of our New Testament prior to finding Jesus, was a terrorist. 
He would go knock on people's door, and as they would open, he would say, do you believe in that Jesus of Nazareth? And if they said yes, he said, cool, come with me. And he would rip families out of their homes and place them in the temple courts and say, these people believe in Jesus, and then they would stone him to death. That was the, the, the apostle Paul, who then met Jesus in, in, in a singular moment, and now has the greatest story and arguably the most impactful ministry outside of Jesus himself. See, we're not talking about someone whose story was, well, you know, I grew up going to church, went off to college, started working, made a few choices, wasn't proud of it. I'd go back in time, I'd redo them. Well, you know, I just felt like it was time to come back to church and I'm just really glad to find, like we're not talking about someone who's kind of saying, yeah, it wasn't that bad, I, I would want to redo it. Like we are talking, somebody who was the worst of the worst. He was so far gone, and yet he should have known, and yet he was still used by God. Now, I remember in high school, kind of like attending church camps, and it become a Christian later in life, and going to these church camps in high school and just like hearing the cool testimonies. You know, the guys who was like, man, I was just like strung out on coke strung out on heroin, and I was about to take that last shot that I probably would have over, but God met me, the needle didn't go, and whatever. Like, you hear these stories, and you're just like, man, now that is a cool testimony. God can use that guy in that story. Man, God has really delivered her from some stuff. I wish I had a cool testimony like that. I remember thinking that to myself. Maybe you've been there before. Now, I don't know what your faith story is. For some of you here today, your faith story may still be written. You're here this morning to determine, I don't know if this Jesus guy is real, but I'm here to find out. Some of you might raise your hand and say, my faith story is a little little different than the average person's. It is a little rough around the edges. And by the grace of God, you've been able to see radical transformation. Some of us might say, my story is, well, it's a little boring. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents talked to me about Jesus. I was baptized at a young age. I've been involved in the church, and now I continue to follow Jesus to this day. Here's the thing. Whether your story is cool or whether your story is boring, guess what we all have in common? We have two things in common. Number one, we all have that same turning point in which we realize that we are a sinner in need of grace, and Jesus is the only one who can offer us restoration with God. And the other thing that you and I have in common is that our ending will be the same. We will all be together in heaven someday. Those of us who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, worshiping our Father for all eternity. See, the main thing in the family of God is that your story matters, not because it's cool, not because it's boring, not because of how well you sound, but your story matters because Jesus is in it. And perhaps that's the most important thing I could tell you this morning, is that your story matters. We all probably have someone in life who's kind of dealt them a bad hand recently. Life's just kind of thrown a couple curveballs, caught them off guard. You know what that person needs? They need you. What that person needs is your story more so than my sermon. Think about this. If someone is really wrestling with life, trying to figure out, how do I even get up? Do I even want to get up? What's next for me? 
What that person doesn't need is a sermon on, on Philippians chapter three. I count everything joy for the sake of the, everything that I've lost for knowing Christ. No, what they need is you. They don't need a sermon. They need you in the flesh. They need that relationship. They need that story. They don't need someone on a stage to tell them about Jesus' grace. They need someone to sit next to them. Put their arm around them and say, I remember when my life was headed down. I remember when I felt lost, confused, hurt, in pain. I didn't know where to go, where to turn. But guess what? I have found a peace that surpasses all understanding in Jesus Christ alone. Here's the thing is that your life displays Jesus. Your life displays Jesus. It's like playing poker with your cards face up, that no one should ever be surprised about what's coming next if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. Because your story matters. So what story are you telling? This is a baseball. Yeah, this is a baseball. It's signed by uh, a, a Dodger player. Sorry, I know some of you, okay by the name of Eric Karros. Now, if you happen to have an Eric Karros rookie card, you're sitting on a smooth 27 cents. If you uh, have it autographed, believe it or not, it's worth five cents. Eric Karros was a good first baseman. He played 14 seasons, most of them for the Los Angeles Dodgers. To some of you, this ball is completely worthless. Not just because you don't know who that is, but because it's a Dodger ball. I get it, okay? But this ball is completely priceless to me, and let me tell you why. Let me tell you this story. You see, my father was one of the greatest Dodger fans you would ever meet. Constantly went to games growing up. Dodger Stadium, had, had paraphernalia all throughout the house, and he, and he passed along this love for the Dodgers to my sister and I. At the age of nine, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died about six months later. Someone in my family took it on their behalf to write to my favorite baseball player, who was Eric Karros, probably because we shared the same first name. Told him about our story, told him about our love for the Dodgers, my love for him, and he decided to do something about it. And what this player did is he didn't write just a note back in return. He didn't just sign this ball and send it in the mail. Instead, we got an invitation. So come to this game, but come early. Come on the field. Let's toss this ball around. Let's play catch. Let me introduce you to my family, my teammates. Why don't you sit behind the dugout for this game? See, to you, this ball is completely worthless. But to me, because of its story, you could never pry it from my hands. Passionate people tell the best stories. How much more passionate should we be about our Savior, who died on the cross for our sins, has given us new life. 
who looked to his disciples and said, it's better for me to leave so that you may have my spirit and you will do even greater works than I. How much more passionate and how many stories should we tell because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us? Would you stand with us this morning? We're going to continue to worship. And I want you to think about that purpose that you've been called to do. That purpose to do good that glorifies God.